Most people work just hard enough not to get fired and get paid just enough money not to quit. Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. I personally love that quote, but... What do you both think? Is it true? Are employers and employees both just doing the bare minimum to maintain their working relationship? Yeah. If I'm being honest, I think it's a cop-out most of the time. I think we can do better. I've worked with these types of folks. And in most cases, it can make things harder for the rest of us. Actually, before we start, this is Jenna. Or is it? Jenna, if that's her real name, (laughs) is in the middle of potentially job searching herself right now. So we're keeping her real name a secret. Or are we? She could be Bridget. Anyways, so Ashley here has a background in journalism PR, where she had a career in marketing communications, supporting human resource professionals. And currently, she is an educator, a long-term guest teacher for elementary students, and self-proclaimed trend watcher. Kelly's a trend watcher too, but that's mostly just TikTok. Jenna? Thank you so much for being on Indubitably. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. It's an honor, and I really admire and appreciate the conversations that you both bring through your platform, and I am looking forward to our discussion. See, that's a hint to any of our listeners that want to be on the show. If you just compliment us, you can be on as a guest too. (laughs) But, But really, Jenna, we appreciate that. And of course, Kelly's here too. Kelly, what do you think of this quote? I see work in the way that a lot of people see escaping a shark. You don't have to be the fastest. You just got to be faster than someone else, right? So it's not just the working hard enough to not get fired. You have to at least edge yourself above being the absolute worst person so that you don't draw the attention of being the uh, low-hanging fruit, the easily fireable fruit. So we know who's going to be the optimist on this episode and who's going to be the pessimist based (laughs) on those (laughs) opening comments. When am I ever the optimist? It's true. What is this quote even from anyway? Oh, this is from, I should probably give credit where credit is due. This quote was by the great 1900s philosopher, George Carlin. Oh, 1900s philosopher. (laughs) (laughs) So he basically predicted one of the major labor phenomena of today, like, 30 years ago. And that is, of course, the topic for today's episode, quiet quitting. How would each of you, I guess right off the top, how would each of you define quiet quitting? Quiet quitting, the definition kind of lies in the eye of the beholder. There are opposing sides to what the behavior actually constitutes. And if you would define a certain behavior as being quiet quitting, A lot of the people who are on the employer side of the equation look at quiet quitting as people just not putting enough effort in. And that effort that they previously may have been putting in might have been more than what the actual ask of the job was. So it looks like people are declining in productivity when they're just getting back to the baseline expectation. Then there are people who are doing the quiet quitting who are just like, pay me exactly what I'm worth. And I'm not going to extend myself any further than that because you would have to pay me in order for me to do so. I understand 
where it's coming into our work culture and a sense of recalibrating and not overextending ourselves in our jobs. However, I mostly see it as a sneaky way of being disingenuous. It can be a lose-lose situation. As I mentioned, I think we can do better in speaking up for our needs or the team's needs and looking at ways to advocate for ourselves and get involved. So at its core, it's some reduction in labor. And I guess what we'll have to talk about is, does that reduction cross a line? Does it break some sort of obligation that employees have to their employers? All these questions we'll cover today. Let's actually take this chronologically, look at the economic situations and behaviors that led us up to this current trend, talk about it with that context in mind, and then look to what it might mean for the future. The groundwork for this discussion and the term itself was laid specifically during the pandemic and a phenomenon we saw pretty early on coming out of the pandemic when it concerned labor, which was the great resignation. Is that the look that my cat gets on her face every time she sees me come home? You can tell Josh that he's fired too. (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually not sure. I didn't think about this before the show, but Jenna has a dog, not a cat. Does that make her ineligible to be a guest? I think if you're an animal person, that's all I that's all I ask. And a big fan of the pod. I think that's one of the qualifiers. <laughs> oh, that's true. I forgot. I forgot Major <laughs> the great resignation, the phrase itself was coined by Anthony Klotz, an associate professor of management at the University College of London in May of 2021. At the time in the United States, a record-breaking over 4 million people a month were quitting their jobs. And that actually continued consistently through 2022. And we'll talk about trends and implications for this year in a bit. Mm -hmm. And I think at least that there were probably two major pandemic-related factors that contributed to this great resignation. One was people starting to work from home and then being forced to return to the office. And two were just the profit margins that were made by corporations during this time while the rest of us were being unemployed, uh, worrying about where we were going to pay our rent or how we were going to buy food. I sure do miss the work from home days and the balance that that really brought to having more time for hobbies and taking care of other personal projects and goals. And um, yeah, I've really seen the return to office be a real struggle with friends who are at larger companies and and really being forced when it's not a, a natural return to office. So you were you were working at home during the pandemic? Yeah, a good chunk of it for over a year and a half working from home. Um, definitely got settled and comfortable with that. So I think stepping into education after being one of the people who resigned during the Great Resignation, that was a lot to adjust back to and being in person every day again. Kelly, but what about you? I don't think we talked about this. Were you also remote? Or were you hybrid or? So before COVID struck, I was working four days a week on site. And then I was working Fridays from home. I supported an executive who was the chillest person I've ever worked for. I wish I would have worked for him forever, but he retired. He quiet quit. He he very loudly retired. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> he likes like heavy metal and riding dirt bikes. So I think it was a very like emphatic retirement. 
before his retirement is when COVID happened and I started working from home in March of 2020. So three years ago, a little bit more, I've been working almost exclusively remotely. We're starting to tiptoe back into the office here and there for a couple of like collaborative things a month, more or less. And I might be uh, maybe going on site a little bit more in the future. This is why we have Jenna slash Bridget slash Ashley identity somewhat hidden. So she can be honest about things like this. When you were working remotely, do you honestly think that you were as productive as when you were in person? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think being the type of person I am, I really thrived in meetings. Like that's such a countercultural point because I emphatically love meetings and facilitating them and discussions. And so not being in person and having maybe it's the cheesy corny, you know, water cooler talk or grabbing a cup of coffee together. You know, that's a lot of the type of work that I really did and thrived in. And so I found myself being more and more disengaged when I was at home. So being a lot more isolated and not having those meetings that I craved and missed, which I would say most friends really laugh at now. But I saw my household and other friends redefining boundaries, quite literally, our physical boundaries of how do we set work aside, especially if you're in a small place, you can't really walk away from work during those work from home times. And you're one half of the spectrum there, Jenna, but there were also stories that I'm sure we're all familiar with, whether it's us, ourselves, or or people we know, that working from home was amazing because when you're at the office, whether you finish quickly or not, you're still at work. And then if you're done with what you have to do, you just have to sit there and look like you're doing something. <laughs> but when you're at home, you have this motivation to get work done so that you can go live your life. You get to play with your dog. You get to go outside. You get to actually spend time with some of the other hobbies or passions that you have. And so for those kind of people, which, sorry, Jenna, but I think that's the majority of people. <laughs> for those kind of people, they got a taste of what a better work-life balance looks like. And so as they started to be forced to return to the office, this is definitely one of the motivations for this great resignation in my mind. We took stock of a lot of things because of COVID, because for a while it was very scary. And we definitely had an expectation that we would all get sick and some of us would probably not make it. Fortunately, no one in my immediate circle did, but it it gave you a, an indication about how like tenuous life is. And do I really want to spend my my time commuting 12 hours a week? Do I really want to sit in an office with ambient noise that I can't control and have overstimulation that drives me up the fucking wall with my ADHD? Or do I want to always have the option to work from home where I can control the sound and get my work done on my own peacefully? That is a really big part of my quality of life is not seeing people during the day. And this is one of the factors that set up for the great resignation as some companies were trying to force people back on site and other companies were respecting this newfound way of working remotely. People that got used to remote work and felt as though they could at the same time, be more productive for their company and be more productive for themselves, of course, they're going to want to quit a company that's trying to force them out of that situation and find one that's maintaining the new norm. So that's half of it in my mind. The other half would be just 
profits. And we saw from the middle of the pandemic coming out of it, some pretty obnoxious, ludicrous numbers from how much revenue companies were making while the entire world was suffering and going through this crisis. A study by the Brookings Institute examined the financials of 22 companies and the effect of the pandemic on their earnings versus compensation for employees. And these companies included Amazon, Kelly's favorite, (laughs) Disney. Do you like Disney, Kelly? I like Star Wars. Fair enough. McDonald's, FedEx, Home Depot, and Hilton. So 22 of the largest companies in the world from a cross-section of industries. And in the first 22 months of the pandemic, 22 companies, 22 months, very convenient. These companies generated $1.5 trillion in wealth gains for shareholders, which is nearly triple the wealth generated in the previous 22-month period. And in comparison, 7 million workers at these companies earned about $27 billion. So if you want me to do the math for you, basically, workers made about 2% of gain compared to the shareholders' wealth gains. Everybody was struggling. And it wasn't just that there was a resignation. There were a lot of industries that were severely hindered by COVID and layoffs were a big issue for a lot of those folks. And it it hurts to see people profit when everybody's suffering. Yeah. Wow. These numbers are staggering. I knew it was pretty bad, but I didn't realize the gap was that severe. Wow. To explain it in a different way, more than 70% of the wealth that was generated for U.S. shareholders, this would be over $800 billion, went to the richest 5% of Americans. And only 1% accrued to the bottom half of all American families. And that's the category that includes nearly all frontline workers. So 1% of the profit was divided between 50% of the population. and. 70% went to the top five. I stopped being shocked by this type of stuff a while ago, like during the Occupy movement, because this is just how America kind of works. But it is pretty egregious. Sure, this is capitalism. Okay, fine. But in the middle of a pandemic where people are dying, society is changing in unprecedented ways. You remember how the word unprecedented was used on every email ever for a while? (laughs) In these unprecedented times. (laughs) Anyway, so in these unprecedented times, it is certainly understandable for why workers would look at the money that they are making, the shareholders, that they're making, the wealthiest in society, see everybody around them struggling and say, you know what? I'm out. I quit. Yeah, absolutely. If day in and day out, you're helping make this top percent, you know, that much wealthier, where do you have the motivation? You know that your efforts are going towards this and only making this gap that much steeper, not to even mention or get into all the um, space exploration that came from some of the top wealthiest. Right. If these numbers are confusing to look at and contextualize to understand the disparities, certainly a rocket ship to space makes it a lot easier. So We understand why people were frustrated and why so many people decided to make major changes, but I still don't fully understand what people were doing instead of their jobs when they resigned. I know some people probably did look for other jobs, but the labor market was strained and kind of continues to be 
because it's just a weird economic landscape out there. So what is everybody doing when they've resigned? I do think that we would be remiss to not point out maybe a third factor contributing to the great resignation, and that would be just the massive increase in social welfare programs that the government injected into the economy, anything from increased unemployment that was COVID-specific to PPP loans for businesses to stimulus checks. Certainly, there was a lot of criticism towards the people who were quitting, saying that they were leeching off of the system in this instance, taking their free money and, yeah, just sitting at home, getting by on somebody else's labor, somebody else's tax dollars. In some cases, it is a fair criticism. Not going to say it was all cases, but certainly applied in in certain instances. Well, I didn't resign because I'm afraid of missing even a single paycheck. I live in constant fear of economic ruin. Although there were times where it was appealing during COVID to maybe just not work for a few months. I think it brings up an interesting reevaluation on values and something I've been pondering on a lot lately is if you're with a company whose values you don't align with or you're seeing them taking advantage of employees in asking absurd hours or overtime by staying, am I showing that I'm supporting and I'm okay with what the company is doing? Or by leaving, is it more making a more powerful statement by saying I'm not agreeing with it? Mm. During this great resignation, we had a lot of people quitting for obviously a variety of reasons, whether they're ethical reasons that you were just talking about, Jenna, whether they're work-life balance, quality of life reasons that we discussed working from home, being forced to go back to the office, whether it's just disgust at the profits and the way that wealth is being distributed in a time of crisis, or whether they're just being lazy, whatever the reason is, we saw this great resignation. But now things have slowed down a bit. Stimulus checks have ended. Unemployment has gone back to normal. Employers are not quite so desperate. New jobs are not quite so readily available. So workers are taking a new strategy. They've shifted from great resignation to the idea, the main crux of this episode, quiet quitting. And like we talked about earlier, quiet quitting is not people quitting their jobs. That's great resignation. So maybe quitting is not the right word. Jenna, you're our PR communications specialist. What do you think of the term quiet quitting? The credit actually has to go to a gentleman named Brian Creeley, who first coined the term last year in March of 2022, after the great resignation had already been underway for quite some time. He first used this phrase when he was interviewed for an insider article about how employees are just now coasting. However, critics, since he coined that term, are now saying it is quite a misnomer because, as you mentioned, they're not quite exactly quitting. But it could also be defined as a middle ground between underperforming and overperforming. And something I found pretty interesting as different employment and employee experience polls have come out, there's a Gallup poll from last year that actually tells us more than half of American workers qualify or identify as quiet quitters. In my professional experience, our management group has started to talk about this more, and they agree that the term Quitting, especially, does not seem apt for this. And one of our leaders suggested that disengagement was probably a better way to describe it. Mm -hmm. It's not that these people are leaving their job. It's 
the thing that they're quitting is their enthusiasm for the job. They're quitting being bought in to the job. And that I think more squarely points to some responsibility from the employer because they are responsible for creating the environment that facilitates engagement. And it makes it seem less pithy and headliney if you think about it as what it actually looks like, which is employees checking out. Yeah, absolutely. And coming from the HR space, there are leadership roles specifically dedicated to employee engagement and employee resource group events and networking and really, really working every day to engage teams or host some of those events or mentorship or happy hours, what have you, to really keep people engaged. But now that I've had a hand in multiple different industries over the last couple of years, I, I really see it paralleled at the moment that's in the education sector. You know, the system's really just not set up to have the right support. And so a lot of people who have been in education are losing their spark. It's a version of being burnt out, as you mentioned, or disengaged. This is certainly not just an American phenomenon either. In China, they call quiet quitting lying flat. And that comes from a post on Baidu titled, that's like TikTok for you, Kelly. TikTok is TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> well, Baidu is Baidu. And this Baidu post was titled, Lying Flat is Justice. It's the English translation, obviously. And this post went viral on the platform, and it was basically a manifesto of renunciation. The post shared the author's lesson from two years of joblessness. He was part of the Great Resignation. And he points to the extraordinary stresses of contemporary life and concludes that they're unnecessary. They're the product of the old-fashioned mindset of a previous generation. And he argued that it was possible, even desirable, to find independence in resignation. His quote was, I can be like Diogenes, who sleeps in his own barrel, taking in the sun, hence lying flat. So whatever we call it, the concept is out there and is universal. The feelings that workers around the globe have towards their employers, especially post-pandemic, seems like a, a unifying mindset. Then you get people who are spinning the message and pointing out that people who refuse to take calls in the middle of the night or give up going to family events because work is more important, that if people put any boundaries forward to differentiate their work life and their personal life, that that is what also constitutes quiet quitting, which is stupid. Yeah, it's sad to hear that that can be misinterpreted as people sort of find their voice in speaking up and voicing some of those boundaries you mentioned, Kelly, because that's just learning to advocate for ourselves more, which is part of what I've been thinking about during our discussion is how to speak up and be more clear about those boundaries or participate and, and jump into those conversations, whether it be with a manager or a mentor at the company and have those discussions of how we can reevaluate our boundaries the self-advocacy is a, is a good point. And the end goal of a lot of self-advocacy is to turn that into societal change or policies. And what you're discussing, the differences between America and other countries around the world is being reflected in different policy proposals. There's things like bare minimum Mondays, which is not an official policy proposal, but 
there is an official proposal for a four-day work week, for example. Bare Minimum Mondays has shown up on TikTok, so it may as well be a policy proposal now. <laughs> the real government of our country, the TikToks. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. I've heard about it in a few different places, but there are a lot of advocates for it. And they're not coming at it from a let's take advantage of our employer and just kind of like dick around for eight hours. It's more like let's set ourselves up to be successful for the entire week by easing back into work, doing what we are expected to do if we have a specific expectation that day. But people launch into their work weeks so head first sometimes. And the burnout by Friday is just astronomical. You know, what bare minimum Mondays actually reminds me of Kelly is when I've seen people who are curious in the plant-based movement, try out the meatless Monday. So it's like just dipping their toes in. So like, let's just get a taste pun unintended, but trying out the meatless Monday, trying out a bare minimum Mondays. How can I experiment in this paradigm without fully committing or going 100%. Or we could just get rid of Mondays altogether with this four-day work week. Although I would argue that if you're going to get rid of, and I actually used to have this schedule, and it was amazing, if you were going to get rid of one day of the work week, it would be Wednesdays. Mm, Yes, I have heard that that's great to break up your week. But when I think about it, wouldn't you want Friday? That would be my vote. Make a three-day weekend, right? No, no, because then every Monday is a Thursday and every Tuesday is like a Friday. And then you've got your Wednesday off and you come back and it's Thursday again. So by taking out Wednesdays, you also get rid of Mondays and Tuesdays. That's how my mind works. You could have this schedule if you worked in the trades. A lot of the people in our department work for tens because we're a 24 hour operation and we need people to work beyond the normal nine to five. So there's jobs that are out there already. It doesn't necessarily need to become a policy proposal. What we need to do is get our Patreon set up, have people become our patrons. And then every Tuesday and every Friday, we can put out an episode for them to listen to. And then we're set the rest of the week. Four day indubitably work week. There you go. And still feed our cats. At this time, um, Representative Mark Ticano of California has this bill proposed in Congress. And this isn't the first time the bill has been proposed either for the four-day work week. So changing our work week more, yeah, seriously, from 40 hours to 32 and giving that better work-life balance and redefining what our work week looks like. We've made a big change when we're looking at work. And I don't think that this is just necessarily one organization or one advocate of this type of restructuring, but people are starting to look a lot more at output versus input. There was a pretty big emphasis on having the appearance of being busy for 40 hours straight. And then it became more clear that people produce work at different rates, that time is not the indicator of effort in a lot of cases, that a lot of people do plenty of work, but maybe it only takes 25 to 32 hours a week to do all the work for them. And does that meet our expectations and our needs? Cool. Then why chain them to a desk for an extra day? Right. And the companies that have participated in a four-day work week or just outright adopted it indefinitely, when they were surveyed, they said there was no loss in productivity. In fact, it sometimes made those teams even more productive because they knew they had that free time 
And like you said, they didn't have those empty time pockets to just fill and twiddle their thumbs. And that's what's important to note here is the root of these proposals is not people being lazy, but it's still in the best interest of employers as well as employees. Realizing that maybe a random 40-hour work week is not necessarily the magic number, cutting hours but making sure that those hours are more efficient actually result in an increase in productivity and output. The question for the episode, though, is does quiet quitting take it past that? At a certain point, you're being paid to do a job. And you can't convince me that maybe some, but you can't convince me that all quiet quitters are going to stop working exactly at the point their contract dictates, as opposed to just a slow and steady drop-off to as little work as they can possibly get away with. It's a spectrum. There are probably people who might be considered quiet quitters because they aren't going as above and beyond as they used to, but they might still be overperforming what their job expectations are. There might be people who are capping their efforts at exactly what their job description says. And there are people who are probably seeing just how close they can toe the line towards, uh, towards getting fully terminated. There are people who are living on the edge right now. And I know that because I know some personally. <laughs> what are their names, Kelly? It's not me. I'm working harder than I have ever right now, which is, oh, God, I wish I could put in less effort, but there's just so much I need to do. So we won't find you rigging some sort of attachment for your computer mouse, like those uh, joke videos we saw through the pandemic of just making it look like you're online and wiggling the mouse for your computer. First of all, I don't even need to because I literally am on that much during the day. But also our workplace in particular is less attuned to whether or not you're green or yellow on teams and more like, is your result actually happening? Is your work product actually materializing? Which I think is a much more appropriate way to measure effort. I think we can all agree that, well, maybe not everybody, but I think most people probably agree that when you get a text or you get an email at 11 p.m., no matter how much your employer wants you to answer it, wants you to respond to it right then, if that's quiet quitting, ignoring that email or that text when you're about to go to bed, quiet quitting is great. If quiet quitting means about 1 p.m. every day I check out whether I've got my work done or not, as long as I think I can get away with it, maybe quiet quitting isn't so great. But I think that Whatever your definition is, quiet quitting came about in large part as a response to hustle culture. Another catchphrase from the recent years that describes the opposite phenomena, people hustling, working as much as possible to make that paper. Uh, uh, I can be cool too. <laughs> Get that bread is what the kids say. Get that bread. <laughs> it's not cheddar anymore. No, it's definitely bread. <laughs> Regardless, uh, there's two mindsets that are emerging, and one would be quiet quitting. The other would be this hustle culture. I believe it can also depend on the type of profession, because hearing the term hustle culture makes me think of those entrepreneurs or solopreneurs or starting a small business on your own, maybe even the MLMs or multi-level marketing or social marketing type of roles where 
they just really live and breathe the hustle culture day in, day out, 24-7, hustle, hustle, you got to make it big, hit the ground running, versus workers who are part of a larger, more established company or organization. And, you know, hustle culture is defined very differently for them, whether it's laid out or not in a clear climb up the ladder for promotion or a new opportunity, or it could not be defined at their company. There's also emphasis on the side hustle too, which is perhaps doing something like working your normal shift and then going and driving for Uber in the evenings or otherwise picking up any sort of side gig that could supplement your income. And to the extent that people are, I would say this qualifies as more egregious than quiet quitting, the remote culture has allowed a lot of people to kind of surreptitiously work two full-time jobs at the same time remotely and just have like one work computer set up on this side of the desk, the other work computer on the other and boom, double income. And that's kind of a sickness, but if you, I get it if you need the money, but I don't think hustle culture is about what money you need. It's about maximizing and getting every single penny you can from your own effort. Hmm. So maybe hustle culture and quiet quitting don't have to be antithetical to each other. Maybe in some ways they both feed into each other for certain people, at least. Maybe. I think that there's a clear link between working two jobs and not being able to maximize your effort at even one job when you do that, probably. The question then that everybody has to ask themselves or figure out for themselves is what is the ideal work-life balance? How much money do you want to make? How comfortable do you want to be financially versus how much do you want to have time to pursue your relationships, whether that be with people or for me and Kelly with our cats or hobbies that you might want to invest your time in? Certainly somebody that's on the hustle culture side of things is saying, hey, I'm going to be spending more time working now, but maybe if I make my money now, I can retire early and more comfortably and I get to reap those life dividends later on. If you were given complete freedom over setting your work-life balance, what would that look like for you? Some people always want to have a job. Some people not so much. So what do you think? It depends on the job you have, I suppose. The goal would be to have a job that you find value in. It gives you a purpose that you think is meaningful and impactful. And in that case, throw yourself into your job because you can be working, whether you're your own employer or somebody else's employee, you can be working and you can be maximizing your own self-actualization at the same time. If that's not the case, I think you just have to ask yourself, how much money do I need to be comfortable versus how much time do I need to pursue these other hobbies? I'm fortunate. I'm in a spot where I think that I have a good balance. The only thing that cuts into my free time more than I like might be editing a certain podcast for like six hours a week, <laughs> but I'm doing that to myself. The values you mentioned with finding that balance have been partially defined through the anti-hustle culture we talked about and some of the trends and discussions I'm seeing online, whether that be LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok, of predominantly female identifying people saying, I'm done trying to be a, you know, quote, unquote, boss babe, or go for that hustle culture or climbing the ladder, whatever sort of 
idiom you'd like to use, getting out of the rat race, getting off of the hamster wheel. I see them saying, hey, you know, white flag, I'm opting out of this go, 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 because I am redefining those things for myself. I'm creating a new balance. And yeah, maybe I I have identified that it doesn't have to be the highest paying job, but the one that does bring me the most fulfillment, as you mentioned, Josh, the things that are most aligned with my values or have a lot of joy in the type of work that we're doing. So I think those conversations in this stage in 2023 is really interesting of folks who are being a lot more real and authentic and saying like, all right, I'm done. I don't need to be chasing that. If given the choice, I would never work again. Never, no matter what the job was. I'm very lucky that I work in an industry and for an organization that I do actually believe in and I think has an overall purpose. But if I had the means, if I just had enough money to do so, I would not work. I wouldn't even like do nails. If people have asked me, would I would I do nails as a side hustle or something? And as soon as money's brought into it, I think I would lose the passion for it. And I really like the passion for it. So I would take all the money and none of the work and be happy for the rest of my life. I know that's not realistic, but I don't want a job. And I think one approach that could happen when it can get to a point of needing to take a step back is the normalization I'm seeing of a career break or pause. And that's something in the HR space that is becoming more widely accepted. There are nonprofits out there, whether it's the Pregnancy Pause, a public policy office that helps mothers who have had a child brand that experience as valuable experience when they're getting back into the workforce and maybe updating their resume or LinkedIn or other nonprofits that support taking a break and being public about it, putting it on your resume, putting it on LinkedIn. Hey, I took a mental health break. I took a sabbatical, whether that be a few weeks, a few months, if you have the means to do so. I think it's definitely important to think about folks who might not have that as an option. And that's where we get into looking at your resources, your status, your privilege, and what you have to make things like that possible. Well, employees and their hopes and dreams, actualization and fulfillment are only half of this equation. The other half, of course, is the employers. And they're certainly not just sitting idly by as we all quit quietly or otherwise. Employers are now responding in turn to quiet quitting with a strategy of their own, quiet hiring. And this is hiring short-term contractors or reassigning your existing employees to new positions. Basically, filling the gaps that are left behind by quiet quitters and ensuring that that work is done in as efficient for them cost-wise a way as possible. Reassigning employees, whether officially or unofficially, is kind of code for, hey, would you like to do more work? Oh, you don't really get a choice because I'm your employer and I control this relationship. We've seen that a lot of times at work where it's like, you just take on this one extra task, then all of a sudden you're doing two people's jobs. And that happens sometimes when there's just fewer people to do the work, but also it happens when there are fewer people who are currently working for that organization willing to also pick up some of the slack or demonstrating that they are not as capable, perhaps because they are lazy. Have you seen the movie Office Space? Of course. 
<laughs> I'm thinking of the boss from Office Space that stops by Friday at about 4.30 p.m. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to need you to come in and work tomorrow. <laughs> That's how I imagine this quiet hiring going. That gets quoted a lot around my home and with friends. <laughs> that would be mm. great. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm going to need you to come in on Sunday too. That guy definitely quiet quit. If you haven't watched that movie, finish this episode and then go watch that movie, Office Space. We should unionize. That would help really check that behavior. And then after you watch <laughs> Office Space, listen to our episode about unions. Oh, yeah. This does make sense, though, on the corporation side of things, because it is cheaper to retrain an existing employee versus hiring a new one. It can cost... Uh, sometimes around $18,000 to hire a new employee. This is from the personnel who have to conduct the hiring, the process itself, to things like relocation bonuses or signing bonuses. And so it does make a lot of sense for a company that is having employees that are less productive or employees that have completely quit to take this quiet hiring approach rather than looking to actually hire new employees. And it's even cheaper if you can contract it out, assuming you manage to do that legally, as then you don't have any of the typical financial employer obligations like social security, healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. You do sometimes pay for those indirectly through whatever the contracted rate is with whatever contracting firm you have. But there are times where it does make sense to go directly to a contractor because it definitely shortens the duration between a gap in a process and a person being there to fill that gap. This is where that advocating for ourselves can really come in depending on your organization because I've been in a more formal firm type setting where you can only move based on experience and years where you go up. So that's a less flexible environment. But I've been at a handful of organizations where if I've advocated for myself and say, hey, I actually feel like this would be a better fit, those conversations can start internally and you could take advantage of maybe some of this quiet hiring internally at least and just being really honest about what your experience is and where your skills might be better grown in another area or applied. So you can, if you are the employee being quiet hired, use it as an opportunity. But in large part, the quiet quitting doesn't just harm the company, it also harms the other people around you. You impact your coworkers that are still committed to the company. And uh, that's definitely a, a downside of quiet quitting. Obviously, you have to advocate for yourself, but how much do you get to take when the burden falls on people around you who are in the same situation that you're in? Well, capitalism. Everybody's in it for themselves. The overall structure does not care about what is fair between individuals. It only uses fairness instrumentally in order to make a desired outcome happen. So what's the incentive for me to care about anybody but myself when I'm on the other side of that employer-employee relationship? Wow, Kelly, did you get into the catnip? You, you sound like the bourgeoisie there. I'm saying that if it's fair for a company to do it, why isn't it also fair for an individual like myself or anybody else to do it? 
I'm just saying you're you're channeling your inner Amazon. No, I reject that categorically. <laughs> so the issue with quiet quitting is unless everybody quiet quits, we have a mass movement. I don't think it's going to work. Or at the very least, if it does work, it works at the expense of other employees. You're not targeting the company like you might think that you are. Mm, that's a really good point. Yeah, I didn't think of it that way because... We might be thinking it's taking a statement or making an impact in that way. But as you're explaining those types of situations, I can feel myself getting angrier and angrier because I think back to those moments where I had coworkers, again, pre-pandemic, this was years ago, who would you know leave a project unfinished, not meet a deadline. So the rest of us were stuck later, like, well, we got to finish this, especially in the events space or if you're working with clients, you got to deliver. So. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's taking a hit on your teammates and you're not being a team player. And when you frame quiet quitting as a David versus Goliath sort of thing, it seems obvious like, yeah, quiet quitting, it's great, go for it. But this might reframe it. Or when you consider how it would impact small businesses, it's easy to vilify Amazon and we do it often. I was kidding, Kelly. I apologize for calling you Jeff Bezos. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but what about mom and pop shops? that often by necessity have to ask their employees to go above and beyond sometimes. Those types of companies tend to have a much more personal relationship with the people that they employ. So they can probably get a lot more buy-in on, hey, this is actually going to be helpful for all of us in the future if we put in the effort now. And if they only have one or two employees, it's going to be pretty obvious if someone's <laughs> quiet quitting slash totally slacking because it's like, who didn't count the till last night? Oh, Jacob was on the clock. It was Jacob. It's like so obvious <laughs> that there's a gap, right? <laughs> I just think it's important to consider the ramifications. If quiet quitting is a social trend, it's not just going to happen for Amazon employees and you're not just going to be impacting Walmart, Home Depot, McDonald's, etc. So to discuss the ethics of quiet quitting, I think that other employees, smaller businesses also have to be concerned. But principally, this whole situation is basically a negotiation, whether formal or otherwise, between employers and employees. And like any negotiation, who can demand what is based in large part on who comes to the table in the more powerful position. Throughout the last couple of years, that has certainly seemed to be employees. But now, as the great resignation is settling down into quiet quitting, and as companies start to have the ability to hit back with quiet hiring, perhaps the scales are tipping back in favor of corporations and employers. And this is where we could start to see some of the real ramifications of quiet quitting. The downside, not just to the workers around you or the employer, but the downside to yourself. Absolutely. In the San Francisco Bay Area, a lot of tech companies and software companies have had massive layoffs in January and February. And some economists say that this is sort of catching up for overhiring that might have happened during the pandemic, which I know is a little bit opposite of some of those big gaps that we were um, talking about earlier. From those large layoffs, there have been leadership teams at these companies that really crack down on performance metrics, which kind of gets back to that big brother 
mentality of you're being surveilled and really they're gathering data on how how productive you're being. And so if you're really trying to sneak in some of this quiet quitting, it's going to show up in your numbers, whether your deliverables are X, Y, or Z, it's going to have real ramifications because there's a lot of these huge layoffs going on. Maybe the most well-known example of that would be our boy, Elon Musk, over at Twitter, which we did an episode on, and the massive layoffs, but then also the subsequent demands that he made of employees in the aftermath of that. He's demanding that his employees that are left over commit to a hardcore, quote unquote, culture at Twitter or GT the FO. I know which option I would choose. The FO? Yeah, that's a one thing I think has been absent from a lot of the discussion about quiet quitting is why don't you just quit quit? Like if you're that dissatisfied with your job and you have the skills to do something better and more fulfilling elsewhere, why just plod through an unsatisfying job with an unreasonable boss and just become disengaged? And I know that people are simultaneously quiet quitting. And also, I think some employers are categorizing it like cheating. They're looking for other jobs while they're still employed here. <laughs> but like, look for another job while you're at it too. Don't just fly under the radar for like two or three years at a company. Start putting applications out and just get out. But to the point that Jenna was making earlier, if you do quiet quit, and you are looking for another job, and you either don't get that job or that new job asks your current employer for references, and they have these metrics and can tell them, hey, this is how well you have or how well you haven't been performing, quiet quitting, you might be shooting yourself in the foot. If you're actively performing under what your contract stipulates, maybe. But if you literally meet expectations, what are they going to say? They met expectations but not the unwritten expectations that I wanted them to divine through mind reading. Well, you you say it like that, but my answer would be yes. These tech companies, especially, Jen and I are both in the, the Bay Area, they have tens of thousands of applicants. And that's what created this culture that existed before, the the hiring bubble before the hiring bubble broke, to coin a phrase for what Jenna was describing earlier. And At that point, yes, you have to be the person that answers emails at 11 o'clock. You have to be the person that works on Saturday if you want to be the person that gets that job. Which then leads into the discussion of how are you branding yourself when you are putting those applications out? Because I agree with what Kelly said. If it's that time and you shouldn't just be flying under the radar, it's time to start putting applications out. But when it comes to the intentionally underperforming or you know barely meeting those bare minimums, In the recruiting space, we talk about we're looking for metrics. So HR professionals are on your resume, on LinkedIn. I want to see metrics, like lead with numbers. What are your performance-based deliverables? So X percent of this was achieved. And what are you going to have to say for yourself at the end of the day? How are you going to brand yourself to launch yourself into the next thing? So when we're in the middle of a pandemic and companies are desperate, quiet quitting is great. but as companies regain a more powerful position, maybe that hustle culture starts to come back with a vengeance. Is this where I get to do my customary, I really hate capitalism. And now I've got another reason why rant. (laughs) Yep. This is exactly where you get to do that. (laughs) 
And Josh, I don't want your head to spin around or anything, but I actually see some merit in the idea of doing more than what is at the surface level expected of you in a job. Catnip? Are you sure you didn't get in the catnip? Why would catnip make me amenable to capitalism? (laughs) You should be asking if I got into something much harder. This is a family-friendly show. (laughs) I do think that my quote-unquote defense of capitalism here or defense of extra effort is a little bit different than how most businesses may view it in terms of why they're looking for people to go above and beyond. I think that it is an expression of selfishness from an employee who says, I'm putting an extra effort and this makes my employer think I'm more bought in and I try harder and I'm a better employee. But it's ultimately for me at the end of the day to position myself better towards getting promotions, bonuses, stretch assignments that give me more stuff to put on my resume to justify other expansions in my career, other advancements in my career. And that's where quiet quitting doesn't meet the long-term needs of a lot of the people who are burned out right now. Sometimes you have to power through the burnout to get to a place where you're in control. You have negotiating power. You can find a job at a better firm that gives you the PTO you actually need. So it, it, it doesn't seem like it when you're doing it. But going above and beyond is actually a little bit selfish. And I'm for it. That's kind of my career story. Hmm. So when companies are doing too well, perhaps recording even unethical levels of profit, people retaliate en masse and create a situation where they have the power. Then they can make greater demands, work to the degree they find fair, etc. As that stabilizes, though, the scales are rebalanced and employers regain their ability to enforce certain standards. They make their employees start to think in the way you just brought up, Kelly. At the end of this, does that mean that the lesson is just the free market solves? Do you both think that the right balance finds its way forward based on whatever current economic situation that we're in? Well, no. A lot of this could be prevented if we had more control over industry and more rights for labor in in places like the United States. There are a lot of constraints in other countries that curb these unreasonable profits and give employees more rights that ensure that they don't get to the point of burnout that inspires quiet quitting. So in the United States, maybe, yeah, because it's just like the Wild West, but across the entire whole country. But the rest of the world has better mechanisms in place to actually keep the balance without having everybody try to play a game. Right. Having the ethical standards and structures in place to where we're not seeing the pendulum swing so far both ways that we've been discussing and not having certain groups of workers being taken advantage of or exploited or chronically underpaid and undersupported. I like that idea because I'm an advocate for, in this instance, the free market solving to a certain extent. If you have the control and companies are being abusive, quiet quit, take it to them, try to assert yourself. But if that starts to hurt the people around you, if that starts to hurt companies and we get to a position where they're not as desperate for labor anymore, but they want to find the right people, then they should be able to enforce standards that they seem fair. But the term you use, the the swinging of the pendulum, 
I think that happens much too far in the status quo. So some sort of legislation and restrictions to ensure that this pendulum swing does happen organically, but not to the extreme that we've seen to create an employment bubble. And then when that pops, the ramifications that we get from it, that seems like a a fair solution that allows for some flexibility without the risk of things going too far. I think that was a nice tied bow at the end. (laughs) We'd both like to thank you, Jenna, for giving us some free labor today by joining us as a special guest on this episode of Indubitably. Thank you for having me. It's been a wonderful discussion and it's been really great being here with the both of you. Thank you. Jenna or Ashley or Juliet, whatever your real name is. Hmm. We may never know. (laughs) For anybody looking to hire her, though, she gets my recommendation. Ah, thanks, Josh. Speaking of recommendations, if you have any hot jobs that any of us could apply for, you can reach out to us on our social media at Twitter and Facebook at Indubitably Pod, and we'll take it under advisement. Let us know if you quiet quit, if you were part of the great resignation. We've mentioned before that we would like for these episodes to be starting points and then conversations to continue on past the end of the episode. So any experiences that you'd like to share, we would definitely like to hear them as well. And that being said, we'll see you all next week. And Kelly, yeah, I'm going to have to ask you to come in tomorrow morning, actually. I'm just not seeing myself in a place where I have the bandwidth to absorb additional hours at this time. To piggyback off of that, could we loop around and take a 30,000 foot view to get some perspective? And we can circle back at our next sync up if I could get a one-on-one. Perspective would be a great value add. Why don't we synergize backward over, you know what, I quit. <laughs>